listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. We sometimes talk about enlightenment in, uh, in two ways. On the one hand, it's a systematic and continual disidentification with our minds. It's a systematic disidentification with our minds. It does not mean we become mindless. I want to try to avoid that as best as possible, but rather mindful. We attend to our lives with our full mind. Might be another way we could look at that. When we disidentify from our minds, that essentially means we are no longer caught by our memories, nor are we caught by plans. We're just here, in this moment, attending fully to what's happening, whatever that might be, attending fully to it. So that's part one. And part two is as we begin to kind of let this in and we begin to kind of share, we begin to kind of communicate, we begin to kind of walk with this recognition, we feel this literal, a, a compulsion to give it away because we see it's not ours. It's not my enlightenment or your enlightenment or somebody else's enlightenment. It is just awakening. And any practice that can get you there is an authentic practice. Any practice that can get you into a space where you begin to let go of concepts where you can let go of all those aspects of our minds that are either memories or plans, when you can let go of that, that compulsion to share it, to share that recognition, becomes very, very natural. To get strictly Buddhist about this, if you feel like it, step one, the dis disidentification with mind, is what we call wisdom. And step two, the sharing of it is what we call compassion. Wisdom and compassion meeting. Okay? Kind of carries an interesting bit of weight into the symbol of the bow, doesn't it? That's wisdom and compassion meeting right in front of my face. And who am I offering that to? Everyone. Just like you. This is why we bow. We don't bow to give up our sense of self. We don't bow to give up our sense of self. We bow to salute what is holy within us. And we see it in the other person. That's compassion and wisdom all at once. 
So the next time you feel, you know, if somebody offers you a bow or something like that and you kind of go, mm, I don't want to do that. that. That feeling right there, that's your ego. That's the very thing. That is the very thing that wants you to identify with it so that it can stay in charge. charge. That's mind. It's another way of putting it. We can easily interchange ego and mind in this work. So for those of you who have like really strong minds, which is most of you in this room, because I know several of you, please recognize it doesn't mean you have to give up your smarts. Okay? That's all wonderful stuff. Intellects are wonderful things, but they will not help you in this endeavor at all. So make peace with that. Make peace with the fact that your brilliance, whatever it is, whatever it is, your brilliance is a dull shine compared to the radiance of what's beyond that. Okay? And you kind of just got to, this is like where faith kind of comes in, I guess. So you just, just, you, you just kind of trust that this is kind of what happens. As we sit still, as we begin to practice this, something different kind of takes over. And we still have all those intellectual gifts that we were given, but we don't cling to them like we used to. And therefore, they begin to shine and radiate differently than they used to. They become more full. Our thoughts become more expansive because they don't adhere to themselves. Everything becomes much more fluid and flowing. And living in that space generates a certain grace and ease that we can literally offer to the rest of the world. So I think I've just spent um, several of my metaphors tonight already. Um, so <laughs> I apologize. But just know that when we sit tonight, one of the most amazing things you can do, one of the most amazing things you can do is just study whatever pulls you away from a focused mind. Just study. Be alert. Be ready for whatever pulls you away from a focused and steady mind. You're going to notice real quickly, my goodness, I do not have a steady mind. Everything pulls at my... What is a steady mind? I'm just constantly being pulled. Totally natural. Stick with that. Practice there. Study the fact that you don't have a steady mind. That studying cannot help but come from a steady mind. Even if it gets taken away, you kind of gently and kindly pull back and say, gosh, boy, that's just like a monkey swinging from branch to branch. Those thoughts just keep coming. Huh. That is a steady mind. That awareness of the monkey in your head, the awareness is steady. Be there. Keep gently pulling yourself back to noticing your breath. If you want to use that as an anchor, that's a great technique. Always just noticing, okay, inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. i got to remember to respond to that bar mitzvah invitation. Mm. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, right? You know, we always have this stuff going on. Always have this stuff going on. And we just, just keep bringing it back gently. 
gently. That bar mitzvah is going to be fun. Whoa, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, just pull it back, gently, gently, and that creates a focus. And that's where the magic is. Okay. That's where stillness is. And every bit of an authentic practice begins there. Every bit of an authentic practice begins there in that stillness. Okay? You ready? Last week we spent some time talking about uh, getting a teacher, how important that is in this, in, this, uh, in this process, and how the teacher's job is to uh, relentlessly point out when we are clinging and what we're clinging to. The core of an authentic teaching, keep in mind, is to let go. It's at the core of every authentic teaching, no matter, I don't care who, what flavor, what flavor you pick, but uh, it's, all, it's all about that, that idea of letting go. And so the teacher points that out constantly. The good ones do. They point that out. So along those lines, in addition to a teacher, what can be very, very helpful is a practice. Without a practice, the teacher's uh, words, um, I, can only, I can only actually talk about this on a personal level. I remember when I was first uh, about midway into a fairly intense couple year, two or three year period of, of Zen practice, and I kind of got to the point where uh, I wouldn't meditate as much, and I certainly didn't go to as many, um, you know, meetings. And we, there was a local zendo in in uh, where I was living. Uh, but every I don't know month or two, I would go listen to this one particular teacher. Two, actually, I take that back. Two or three particular teachers. I'd listen to them talk, and it was like what they would say would remind me, would resonate with me. It's like, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. So I spent all of this time getting literally reminded of what sitting shows us, what practice shows us. But I wasn't really into practicing because that, that's where the work kind of happened and I had other things to do. Uh, and it hurt to get up that early. Literally hurt, you know. It's like the alarm would go off, and it's like, ah, you know. And, you, and the worst invention, of course, is the snooze alarm. I think we may have talked about this, because that seven minutes then puts you into that space of just complete and utter bliss. Now, why the hell would you get out of your bed to sit still when you can have this bliss, you know? So I was kind of caught, and I couldn't really figure out what, what was going on. This is, again, just my, my personal story. Well, I finally ended up talking to a teacher about it, and I said, you know, I just have gotten into this space where what you say is so helpful, and it's really it's meaningful, but I, 
you know, I, I, I just got to admit that I don't, I just don't uh, sit maybe as often as I should. I don't practice as often as I should. And this lady says to me, she said, I've told this to you guys before too, I'm sure, so forgive. But she says, that which keeps you from sitting is the very same thing that keeps enlightenment at bay. Oh, okay. And that's it. That once again, it was such a great teaching. What does a teacher do? A teacher relentlessly points out where we're clinging. And she got me, you know. And it was quite, quite marvelous because at that moment then, exactly when the alarm would go off each morning, I had a very quick conversation with the very thing that was getting in the way of awakening literally, and then kind of in the grander philosophical, spiritual sense. That thing that wanted to go back to bed is the very same thing that does not want awakening to unfold. So I very compassionately, when the alarm would go off, I would yell at it, go away, you know, whatever. All kidding aside, it was just this really nice dialogue to have first thing in the morning. The very first thing in the morning was, I'm going to get up so that I can wake up every single morning, except Saturdays, because Friday night I went out. Gave myself that one night, <laughs> one morning, excuse me. So what is it that this practice does? If we can somehow get into that space where we can create kind of a stiffened, more disciplined approach, which most of us don't like doing, if we can get into that space where we're you know, we actually going to kind of commit, what is it about a practice that makes it authentic? I throw that word out a lot, and I just, I'll kind of try to back it up a little bit. An authentic practice in essence, is working to do just a couple of things. Number one, it's working to create uh, a focus of the mind, a undis totally undistracted mind, a mind that just becomes so focused that it opens. Okay? It becomes aware of itself. And then suddenly there's this recognition, this mind, this mind that there's an awareness of is not connected to that awareness really. That awareness is separate somehow from that mind. That awareness is no longer identified with that mind. That disidentification of mind is wisdom. That wisdom begins to kind of percolate through us. So we train ourselves to pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pop. And we rest there. We rest in that openness. So after we train ourselves to focus, 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 we then allow for this opening, this literally a, um, a surrender to occur. Any authentic practice is going to push us right into that space. First focus, and then bam, begin to let go. 
open, 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 open. Open yourself, let go. Let go of precisely everything. And the teacher can be really helpful on step one, which is to begin to focus. Here's some techniques for meditation. I happen to be in, it came from a tradition where it was all about the, uh, you know, watch your breath, sit up straight, watch your posture, watch, 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 watch. Align, align, align yourself, align, you know. <clears throat> and that's one way of doing it. Koans in Bhutan, another tradition, Buddhist tradition, but another sect. Those would be fine. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Does a dog have Buddha nature? Do, you know, all these great koan questions that have no answer that the mind can come up with. Those are all great. Chanting, okay, all of this stuff. All of this stuff is just great, but it just helps us kind of get, get focused. That's it. In the opening, that's where we begin to let go of not only the little things, but perhaps the biggest thing of all, which is our sense of self. Our selfhood, our small self, is built on clinging. All the things we cling to arise to create this thing we call by our own name. All the things we cling to create this personality, create this mask. And so we let go of all those little things, and then pretty soon it becomes, you know, the final step is, I'm actually going to let go of this mask. What's left? The universe is what's behind that mask. And it's what's out there as well. The universe meets itself through you in that opening. That this whole thing we call a self just becomes, as I've mentioned before, like a door. Every inhalation is an invitation to the universe to meet itself on the inside of us. Every exhalation is a meeting of what's on the inside out into the universe. And it's all universe. That's in that opening. There's no lock on the door anymore. And then, after that surrender, after that kind of uh, that opening, we kind of recognize that there's nowhere we have to go, that there's nothing we have to get. We begin to be very comfortable in this natural state of ours, which is a state of total, complete, and authentic stillness. And in that comfort zone, which is infinite, it has no center and no circumference, it's just infinite, in that spaciousness, we begin to meet the world. And I probably advocate this maybe a little bit too heavily, but um, I think that any authentic practice works to support its students in hitting that space of coming back into the world. You might have a couple of beautiful realization moments, okay? You may have learned how to train your mind to focus and to be quite still and undistracted 
you might be really good at staring down your distractions, okay? Creating that awareness. You then may begin to open and let go with the coaching of a good teacher or series of teachers. How to just let go of everything, including and most importantly, the mask, so that the universe can see itself through us. Then we get to this space where we essentially bring it back into the world. We begin to meditate just like we did in the beginning, but the intention is bigger and broader. And we recognize that it's, meditation is not something that we are doing. We're not meditating, but actually, at this stage of realization, we are getting meditated. Or, uh, I heard it said this way, I really like this. We're not doing meditation. Meditation is doing us. I know that sound, might sound kind of strange and oddly sexual or something, but it's like we're getting, I guess you could say that actually. We're getting meditated. We're getting done. Okay? We're getting done. There's no one doing the meditation. The meditation is doing us. I hope that kind of makes sense a little bit. It may sound a little bizarre, but it's, it's actually quite, quite real. We expose ourselves and open ourselves to this practice, hopefully one that resonates with us. And we just sit there. We are with it. We are with the teaching. We are with the teacher. We are with the group. We keep tasting it little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. Then pretty soon it kind of takes care of itself. The stillness practice, the practice takes care of everything. We begin to untangle at this point. Everything that has kind of bound us and kind of, you know, we call it, uh, we used to chant in the evenings, uh, talking about how we, are, we would take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and we, had, we were paying very close attention to all of our ancient twisted karma. I love that line. Our ancient twisted karma, which basically means, just for the Reader's Digest version here, twisted karma, our ancient twisted karma, is every bit of activity we have ever done that comes from ego, small self. Any egoic act that's predicated on gain or avoiding loss creates a tangle for us, okay? And so what the stillness does is it actually begins to kind of untangle all of that stuff on its own. We don't have to do the untangling. We just pay attention to the tangle fully. It doesn't mean we don't have to do any work. Okay, sometimes it's really helpful, honestly, to get a therapist. <laughs> the therapist can do wonders for getting the ego at least in a position where it can let go of itself. All right? But this next step where we actually are, are just letting the tangle kind of fall away happens when we begin to pay attention, very, very close attention to what's going on. Every minute of every day. And we keep doing it. We do not have a sudden enlightenment where everything is taken care of and then we can just kind of float away. 
it's not the way it works. It's certainly not anything I'm interested in teaching. <laughs> it's about a process. And in this process, you then become the teacher. Which is kind of the ultimate goal out of all of this, is for you guys to become part of this marvelous miracle, this mystery, where you become teachers without ever having to say a word. I'm not saying formally like in this situation, but you just, you begin to embody that grace. Otherwise, we're wasting time. So in addition to the teacher, in other words, in addition to having the teacher that helps us through this step-by-step-by-step step step process, an authentic practice involves focusing and training, training a still mind. It also involves then uh, opening and letting go. It also involves then this intentional non-doing and letting that intentional spaciousness that allows for all of our knots and tangles and so forth to kind of unravel through us and with us as we meet the world. And if that has a Christian flair to it, awesome. Hindu, Muslim, Judaic, whatever. Buddhist, doesn't matter. That's the way we get there. That's the way we get there. And that's how we change the world. I took it out of context, but there was a place of, from the open space, you seem to make a jump or a connection, probably better said, to back into the real world. Mm -hmm. Could you, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to follow sure. that connection. The openness that I'm talking about, when we, when we focus so much that the stillness, in other words, we focus our mind, we just pay attention, pay attention, that we become the attention. Okay, then this kind of this openness begins to occur, and that openness is never separate from the real world. It is the real world. It's just the way we meet the real world. We tend not to meet the real world from a place of openness. We tend to meet the real world from a place of defensiveness. In the kind of openness I'm talking about, there's nothing to defend. We sound like that marvelous 80s song, We Are the World. We <laughs> no idea where that came from, but just stick with me. We are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make it right, except it's not that we're separate. We are, quite simply, all of it. Okay? So our meeting of the world becomes an intense, just playful, energetic experience. 
and we carry with that a different attitude into our contests, we know there's no contest. So you're saying after, after the awakening is during meditation, and then after that, because of that opening in meditation, that then when we're actually in work, that we have this different vision. Different, well, I, different way about us. that's what I see. That's what I see. I see that, that when people are at that space where suddenly stuff starts to really, really shift, you know, they get some teases or maybe they have just, you know, massive kind of, you know, whoa, what the hell was that type thing, and then it starts to actually settle, okay, that they're able to meet their day-to-day -day differently. They see the sacred in all things, all right? And this allows their relationships to those that are closest to them as well as those that are, you know, maybe adversarial on the other end of a business deal that they really don't like. There's a different quality of every relationship because they see that everything is connected to what's sacred within them, that all things are holy. And that doesn't imply or might imply, but it doesn't mean that that means that you give in to everything and everything's okay and I'm going to stay here on my couch and watch daytime television because that too is beautiful. It's more than that. You may choose to sit on the couch and watch daytime television because it too is beautiful. All valid. Okay? However, it usually means that we're able to kind of align, like I used that word before, align with our highest calling, which is to creatively share. Creatively share that which is most sacred within us, because we know it's what's sacred within everybody else, which is actually why we use the word in yoga class, namaste. I salute the God within you, because it's the same as what's within me. And so we are always, 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 always working to let this inform our real world experience. Not trying to stay on any mountains, trying to come home with the summit experience. And however it's changed us, we bring that then into the marketplace with, uh, as they say in Buddhism, with bliss bestowing hands, fat and happy. Yeah, Paul. It's not what you mean by um, the universe meditating through you, then, like you were alluding to a few minutes ago. Help me with the question. Is is what well, is I'm what that I mean? A trouble following that idea of um, getting done by meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Having it do yeah. us, yes. Sexual right, the, right. And um, and I'm trying to connect that mm -hmm. to you know, living in the world. Living in the world means that we let the world live through us, and and we can live through the world. There's more of a balance when we can do that. And we can do that very consciously the more we allow the universe in, okay? We let the universe in every time we consciously are still. 
okay? Every single time that happens, every single time there's a felt sense of oneness with the all, all right? In, medita in meditation, it doesn't even have, I mean, your meditation might be, you know, uh, grading your backyard to make sure that the drainage works or something. That may be your meditation, whatever it is. If, if in those moments we can be very, very careful and very, very mindful, what can then happen is the meditation isn't something we do. The meditation actually does us, okay? The universe isn't something out there. The universe is something that's always already here. We just get out of our own way so that we can experience it. We realize that the mask, what's, what the mask is hiding is what's on the outside of the mask already. So there's, there's no boundary. No boundary between self and other, between self and universe, between se it, it blends. Now at that point of blending, okay, we can then come home and be back into this body, okay? Because that's, after all, where it's going to happen. It's not going to happen in somebody else's body. It happens in your body. You come back into the world as a body, as a self, that is more deeply integrated with all that is beyond it. And I know this must sound creepy and esoteric, but just stick with me here. That's the work. And that's what an authentic spiritual practice will do, is it'll take us into that space where there is nothing to stand on, nothing to understand, right? And that's egoless. It's egoless. It's exactly what the intellect begins to just flail around and not know how to deal with it. And so that it puts, it puts all these blocks and impediments in the way of the practice, which is great example. You know what? If I keep doing this, I'm no longer going to, I'm not even going to have the energy or the drive to go to work. This is going to, I'm going to leave my husband if I do this. The ego loves playing, it plays dirty, totally dirty, all right? And so what, in other words, the closer we get, the more ego is going to start throwing all the crap that it can in our way, and that's where the practice becomes essential and very difficult. And, but it doesn't have to be difficult the ego it's difficult for ego it's not difficult for that in you which is big because that in you which is big is dying to dying to come out right? and ego is squashing it ego is saying no just like a parent to a 13 year old hot looking girl you are not going out, which is exactly what I'm sure I'm going to do when my baby is 13 years old. I'm going to buy a shotgun, convinced. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? It's like, you know, you, you know, we just, like, sit. The ego wants to sit on all that is truly mysterious and magical in us. It wants to... <laughs> it doesn't want to give up control. It doesn't want to give up control. It doesn't want to give up... I mean, it is the mask doesn't want to be irrelevant, be out of a job. And for the ego to be out of a job means death, actually. And the survival instinct is just as strong in ego as it is in any of us, naturally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, and, and the cool news is, the practice works at slowly and methodically. 
sometimes gently, sometimes brutally, letting the ego know who's really the boss. And the boss is the one song, the universe. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yes, ma'am. Um, so sometimes I think, you know, you can hear criticism of how meditation or sometimes some Buddhist practices can be very solitary and people say, you know, it's just this very introverted thing and you're not connecting with the outside world. But it seems to me from what you're saying is that you really need to do that. It's about cultivating that openness within yourself. So it seems like that's necessary to get to that that next step, so how do you? I think that's, that's really well said. Yeah, you, we start, our, our first steps are, are turning inward, selfward, right? Until we begin to look at it with that focus that I'm talking about and realize, oh my gosh, there's nothing there. But you start there. We start looking at ourselves. We start in meditation watching all the things that take us out of balance. Anything that is not a felt experience of grace and ease is an impediment to awakening. So we study each of those impediments. We study each of those blocks. Yeah? And I like saying that it's, it's like when, when you read the morning paper, there are probably very few times when you look at a word and sound out what the letters are saying. You don't, we don't look at letters anymore when we read after you know, decades of, of reading. We do that in the very first stages of learning to read in first, second, and third grade, right? And then it becomes a flow. And that's exactly what a, authentic practice will help us do. It'll help us turn stillness into a flow experience where we're no longer so concerned with what each letter phonetically does. We're stringing them all together in paragraphs and then into chapters and then into volumes of beautiful, beautiful material. So we let go of the alphabet at some point, just like we let go of our total self-absorption. We do it enough and it becomes something that's actually much bigger than what's in here. It's, it's this massive, infinite spaciousness. So yeah, absolutely. And I would say, um, I think some of that criticism is really well-founded. Some of the criticism that, that, uh, that Buddhism or meditative practice can become just an absolute total self-absorption, I think that's absolutely well-founded as long as that person stays there. And lots do. It's just like st the, the move. It's a three-step process. It's, it's climb, summit, and come home. Instead of going just climb, summit, stay there. It's not the teaching. It's not, I, I don't, it's not a very helpful teaching if that's what somebody is doing. And there are plenty of traditions that will do that. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I like analogies. <laughs> well, you came to the right place. My analogy? Yeah. Yeah, we seem to have this... <laughs> Um, so the way the way I look at this is when I hear about a cyclone hitting Bangladesh in 2300 feet, 
I don't switch off the TV when I hear about the 23,000 people. I go with it and want to feel like I'm with those 2,300 people mm-hmm. and really understand what it is rather than put up my barrier and numb myself to it so that I feel happy because I'm not them. Right. And so authentic practice cuts down that barrier, lets you experience what they're experiencing and understand the balance between that kind of horror, if you like, and what's good, and learn whether that whole continuum yeah. It does. Is that a question? That's a comment. Oh, comment. Okay. Your comment. Flow with it. Yeah. <laughs> your comment. Your com- Yeah. So our job as we deepen our practice is not to turn the television off when we see the tragedy in Bangladesh. You're absolutely right. It's to recognize that their experience could be ours. By the miracle of our existence here and the sense that we are separate from them, boy, you know, isn't that, aren't we lucky, like you said, aren't we lucky that we aren't them, but we are them. Their pain is our pain. It's just pain. Okay? Now, the practice, in addition to watching and not turning it off, is to regard those cries with total and complete openness. There's a sutra that talks about that. We become the regarder of the cries of the world. We just bear witness to what is. And then watch and see what that inspires in us. When it inspires helpfulness, We know that we're plugged into something much bigger than who we are. And then the disaster becomes a gift. The ego wants to figure it out. The ego wants to create a matrix where it can, can, you know, well, this is why it happened to those people, right? And that will never, ever work. It'll actually drive us. A just God, I'm looking for a just God. the eye will always look for something outside of itself to inhabit and deliver justice. Right? But as we practice this authentic or an authentic path, we start recognizing that there is going to be mess and there's going to be tragedy and there's going to be disaster no matter how awake we are. How we participate with all that becomes the mystery and the magic and the beauty of awakening. I saw, I think I saw your hand, did it? Yeah. Is the question still there? I suppose um, to kind of answer it myself, it's more about balance uh, because you could get into the Bangladeshis too much and get sucked into that and not be able to pull back if you, if you attach, yeah, that's, that's the whole thing. And that's where we go back with the second step of this process is the opening, is the release, is the letting go, yeah? 
And so if we are grasping, if we are grasping any situation, even if we're being helpful, if our, if our helpfulness, if we grasp to our helpfulness, it no longer becomes helpful, it becomes karma-producing activity. Tangle-producing activity, right? Dancing with it, on the other hand, which may mean you fly there. It may mean you fly there. It may mean you work for X business or nonprofit or whatever to make sure that help is met. It also may mean that you don't participate at that level. If you do not participate and there's a deep calling that you should participate, then you're violating exactly what we're talking about here. You're creating karma. And sometimes that shows up in, in the form of guilt. Guilt is usually anger directed inward, right? I'm sorry? Plenty of that to go around. Plenty of that to go around, yeah. And the, and, the, and the practice is being able to look at that tangle of guilt and give it full attention and it will unravel. Yeah, Letting go of the guilt doesn't mean you push it away. Oh, no more guilt. It means you, you do exactly what, exactly what we do to the television. We do not flinch. We regard all of it. We have a lot to be thankful for. An awful lot of gratitude. Share it.